This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 540 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Kendra Fisher. Now, Kendra is not only a fellow firefighter now, but she was a member of the Canadians Women National Ice Hockey Team. But she herself has battled mental health issues from a young age, so tells a very, very interesting and unique story about finding the tools to deal with her mental health challenges before entering the fire service. So before we get to this very powerful interview, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of 540 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Kendra Fisher. Enjoy. Well, Kendra, I want to start by saying welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you so very much for having me. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Toronto. Um, begrudgingly, Toronto. I feel like I should be on a beach somewhere, but I am in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, for some of your listeners. 
beautiful. I've been up there, um, really just kind of spent, I think it was one day. I used to work up in the upstate New York area, so that was okay. not too far of a drive from us. Yeah. And what did you do? One day in, in Canada, what did you do? Oh, my God, I don't remember. I know I remember eating French toast in Montreal because they make it really, okay. really uncooked. So I do remember that. It was more like French toast sushi. Um, Ew. But no, I think we just did the, you know, the tourist thing. But this was probably, God, like 25 years ago now. So a long time ago. As long as it was a suitable vessel for maple syrup, that's really all we care about. Yes, I can see that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, then um, I'd love to start chronologically at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, so I was born in a place you've never heard of, guaranteed. It's a it's a little town in Ontario, Kincardine. Uh, growing up, there was about 6,000 people there. And it's this cute little kind of cottage town where everybody wants to spend their summers, but everybody, unless you're a hockey player, tries to get as far away from in the winter because it is it is snow. It's not It's not unheard of to have the highways closed coming in and out of town. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I grew up with uh, my parents. My father worked at uh, the nuclear power plant uh, up there, which is kind of the main industry in the area. Um, my mother had about 20 jobs that I can recall. Um, she uh, primarily has managed the Bruce Community Futures Development Center, which basically fancy way of saying she helps start uh, small businesses and economic development in rural communities. Uh, and she was also an elected member of provincial parliament, which would I think be quasi similar to your state government. Um, so she was a politician uh, and kind of has been involved in, in everything. I have uh, one older brother, he's four years older than me. And uh yeah, I was I was very fortunate. I had a, a very tight knit family growing up, and uh, a beautiful place to do it. Now, with your dad working in nuclear, um, it came up a while ago. I think it was one of my guests who used to work for BP, and he was okay. talking about the future of clean energy. And I think that when nuclear is understood and it's actually done properly, it's it's very safe and and very efficient. What's his perspective on nuclear as an energy? I think my whole family, I mean, at one point, my mother also worked there. My mother has done a lot in terms of uh, development in the area around industries that are complementary or byproducts of uh, what the nuclear plant uh, produces. And my father as well, and now my brother as well. I mean, I think that there's a healthy understanding of nuclear energy in our area, and we understand it to be a clean energy. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to fight the the stereotype that comes out of Homer Simpson wandering around with glowing, you know, green orbs and three eyed fish. Um, it's not like that, you know, and there's, there's a, a lot of great science behind it and a lot of, of work that goes into making it a clean, safe energy. And, and when done properly, I'd be hard pressed to say that, you know, there's an alternative that my father, my mother or my brother would really um, put ahead of that. Yeah, what's interesting, right this morning I was at jiu-jitsu and one of the guys that I train with was talking about West Virginia and that's where his, okay. his family was from originally and yeah. the impact of the coal mines not only on the communities when they close but also environmentally, you know, and that's the other side of the coin is yes, of course, you know, Chernobyl 
is one of those events that is terrifying. However, you know, that's a, you know, a, a less frequent occurrence versus, you know, mining, which obviously that's, you know, the backbone of a lot of people's economy. However, you know, what it does to, um, a countryside and then ultimately what does the community when they shut that mine down, I think is devastating. Certainly. And I think that maybe, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there as, as we learn <laughs> wholeheartedly about pretty much any topic that matters every day uh, lately. There's a lot of misinformation. And I think um, there's also this, I mean, perfect example. Everybody has the ability now to be a supplier of information. There's podcasts, there's websites, there's platforms, there's social media, there's the ability to be a self-proclaimed expert. And so I think that that, you know, it, it kind of muddies the water. And until you actually do the research yourself through credible sources and, and really understand the economic, the environmental impacts of, of some of the different uh, forms of energy and and what it does to the economy and what it does to society, um, it, it's just really important. I think that people take that time to to learn, perhaps from more credible sources than we're we tend to do these days. Absolutely. So you mentioned your brother. You have a very interesting story that you talk about on the website about your first kind of. Um, introduction to hockey and, and the beginning of your road so, so tell me about that and how old you were <laughs> I was four I was four and uh at the time that would have made him eight um and probably one of my favorite places in the world at the Davidson Center in King Card and it's the hockey arena I grew up in and at the time I was taking figure skating lessons because that's that's how you learn to skate you that's know what it's, girls it's, do it, well, you know, I, I, I should probably smack you for that. But, <laughs> no, but uh, I mean, in the, in the world of stereotypes, that's, that's the that kind of, of gender identity. And, and yet, you know, we've come to realize that most figure skaters are probably some of the strongest skaters out there nowadays. And, and you know, most of the NHL teams are, are smart enough to call on them as their skating coaches, um, at least in Canada. I, I don't, I can't profess down there. But uh, I just remember sitting there and watching and I, I was you know, I was just starting figure skating, but I'm sitting there watching my brother play hockey and it just looks so much more exciting to me. Um, I just remember thinking, I got to do that. Like I, I, what am I doing? And I turned around to my mother and professed in front of a group of people that when I grew up to be a boy, I wanted to play hockey just like my brother. And uh, I believe I followed it up with, I was done with finger painting because that's the translation from figure skating apparently at four. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, that was my proclamation. And, and a year later, I went for it. Now, was it a co-ed team or was there a female team that you were able to join? It was co-ed because I was on it. Um, growing up where I was at the time, there were no female teams. It, it was strictly boys hockey. It was, you know, women didn't play hockey where I was growing up. Uh, so I actually played men's hockey right through till. Uh, what would it be called now? I think it's like U16 or U18 AAA um, uh, at a competitive level. And as I kind of grew up, I would run into, you know, another one-off female on another boys team somewhere in a town 30 kilometers down the road. And eventually in 91, I believe we, you know, we kind of put our our minds together and thought you know, we'd started to hear about women's hockey in the city. 
So we thought, let's, why don't we all just put together a tournament team and we'll go try out one of these girls tournaments and see what we could do. So played guys hockey, but played on a girls tournament team to travel down to the cities. And, and it was kind of cool because it was a bunch of girls that all played guys hockey. And and that was kind of our first experience in women's hockey. Um, but yeah, I was, I was lucky. The guys growing up were always really awesome with me. I think it helped that I think I won some games for them. So they they liked me a lot. I was their goalie, and they took good care of me. So it uh, it didn't hurt any that I that I was decent. Now, what age did you find that goaltending was your kind of position? Right away, really? right away. So I mean, so Tyke, it, it starts like five six years old, and Tyke isn't really so organized in terms of you know you're not going and playing games and such you're breaking an ice rink into three three sections and you're kind of just playing against each other having fun learning hockey skills and you know at the end you do like the scrimmage and and you kind of have a a little game against each other and I realized two things really quickly about goaltending one you always had to have a goalie on the ice so if you were the goalie you never had to leave the ice you got to play the entire game There was none of this like changing on the fly or when the coach blows his whistle. Uh, And the other thing I learned really quickly was if you lay down on the ice in Tyke, nobody can raise the puck yet. So you're a hero. Like you stop (laughs) everything. (laughs) And and so I got to be the hero who got to be on the ice the whole time. And I was, this was amazing. And uh, it was novice. So the age above, above Tyke, they had a, a rep team. And they didn't have a goalie because, I mean, you got to be special to be a goalie. Not everybody volunteers to be a goalie. And so they needed a goalie and they needed somebody to come out and try out. And I was interested. So I went and tried out. And very quickly, I, I kind of switched over to rep sports and, and became, became their goalie and, and never looked back. Now, when you joined, the, when you formed the team with all women who had been playing on men's teams, what were those first few games like? Because one could hypothesize that with the additional size and strength of a male's team, that maybe your conditioning level physically was higher than maybe an all-girls team from an inception. So because we were still younger, I mean, in 91, I would have been 12. So at that point, you haven't necessarily created such a gap in differentiation between a male and a female's athletic ability, you know, you're still, it's still pretty comparable at that age for, for many, um, especially as a, you know, as female athletes are, you know, you, you, in the city, you would have this group of female athletes who were all competing at that level. They were just, there were more of them in the same area so they could do it against one another. So it, it was, it was a learning curve first off, especially as a goalie, because it's a very different game. Um, playing men's hockey and playing women's hockey and it began to uh, that gap widened as I got older by the time I was playing you know with 16 and 17 year old boys versus the girls it was a very different game Um, so it was really kind trying to learn a new game almost but as far as where we fit I mean we were always competitive we we won a lot of tournaments we won I believe we won all Ontario's which would have been our provincial championship uh, the first year we started playing in those tournaments. So, you, you know, arguably, yes, we, we had a great group of girls that came together and, and sorted that out. Um, 
but yeah, it was, uh, it was great. It was, it was nice to see the level of competition that existed in women's hockey. Cause it was so new to us too. It was like this, this whole other secret world that we didn't know about. Now, what about with the, the kind of brawling element? I, mean, I just, there's a annual game every year between, I think it's Orlando and Orange County. Um, I watched one a couple of years ago and yes, there was quite a few fights, including my old lieutenant who's old and ginger yeah. and angry. Um, yeah. In that, in that order? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I would say, well, probably it was ginger originally, but then he got old and angry. <laughs> I, I think it's that way. Um, but, um, you know, but there is that element of, of tempers being lost and gloves being thrown. Um, what was, what was that whole kind of, um, world when there's a co-ed team? Did it matter or was it kind of irrelevant because you're all wearing the same jersey? Um, so arguably I probably had a little different experience than some of my, my teammates. Uh, it's different. It's different being the goalie than it is being the defense or the forward as you are, you know, coming of age and as puberty's hitting and as bodies are changing, uh, the goaltending game doesn't change, right? You're stopping the puck. Um, whereas that physicality, I think starts to play a different part in that game. And I think as far as, being singled out um, would be more the issue than than that brawling aspect. It would kind of be you would come against teams who respected the fact and just treated, you know, the female opposition as another player on the ice and respected their ability. But you'd come across teams where it was, you know, they were trying to prove a point and trying to make a make a a scene of it and and kind of, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna show her. Um, and it was always great because I, I, I've known a lot of great female athletes who, who put those guys in their place. And it was always a little more, more fun to watch that. Um, and otherwise, I mean, when I say co-ed, again, you know, when you've got one female on a men's team, which was always the instance, I, I didn't know of any teams where there were two females playing on a men's team. It was, it was kind of that uh, one-off. Um, you know, I had a few games where, they recognized that there was a girl in that and they'd come at me a bit harder and they'd, they'd stop a little later and, and they'd fight a little bit after the whistle. But uh, again, I was, I was blessed, right. It was like having 15 other older brothers on my team who weren't going to stand for it. And I, I would say if anything, um, my presence might've caused a few extra penalties uh, from my players, just kind of really putting guys in their place for, for trying to to make a stand otherwise but yeah it was uh it was good it was good competition right yeah that's, that's a really invaluable insight because it parallels the fire services i'm sure you're absolutely. aware you know yeah, it's absolutely it's whether you can or whether you can't is what matters and you're all wearing the same uniform yeah and, and you're always going to have some who who want to single out the fact that you're a woman and you're going to have that many more who respect the fact that you're there doing the same job and and you know we all have our strengths we all have our weaknesses and you hope that you're with a group of people who respect that and and move forward with that absolutely well speaking of the fire service when you were at that school age what were you dreaming of becoming back then a doctor so i wanted to be a doctor um for a really long time and ironically realized or really hated when people puked near me. So go figure. I mean, nobody warned me about the whole firefighting side of this, but uh, yeah, I, I, I could picture myself doing open heart surgery, but the second that that person started puking, I was getting out of that room. So 
Um, and then I got really into, and I don't know if this is a testament to my psychology or not, so maybe I shouldn't freely admit this, but I, I've always been entirely uh, taken by by those crime crime dramas and criminal behavior and forensic psychology. And had I had there been a path to become a, a forensic psychologist, behavioral psychologist, or in a forensic environment, had there been a path that didn't involve having to be a police officer first, uh, I certainly would have considered that route as well. But uh, there's no part of me that ever felt as though policing was my was my calling. So it wasn't until later that I, I really kind of realized how much I was drawn to firefighting. Have you watched the show Mindhunters? Oh, yeah. 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 That's, See, that's, that's phenomenal. That's my dream job there. That's my dream job. And, and had there been a, like a possibility of getting to that level without having been a police officer first? Yeah. Sign me up. I'd, I'd be great at that job. If you ever, ever see me in front of a TV, which is rare, guaranteed I'm looking for a crime show. <laughs> All right. Well, then again, going back to the early life one more time, um, two things. I, I know listening to you on the Crazy Bitches podcast, um, which is a great conversation to listen to that you identified that, that there was an issue quite early in your life. But before we even get to that, there seems to be a common denominator with many of the people I've had on. And obviously, I've got to listen to some very powerful stories now, especially people that got to a very dark place further on, an element of childhood trauma. Now, that could be anything from sexual abuse all the way through to being the middle child, whatever was perceived as trauma. When you look back, did you have any elements of that? Uh, yeah, none that I've spoken about yet, but hey, here we are. Um, you know, I had a few things growing up that really, now that I'm past them and now that I'm in a position where I understand them better, I understand the traumatic nature of what I've been left with as a result of that. Um, and I had some of those like weird, crazy psychology moments too, where it was like that subconscious thought that you had that moment in psychology where it was like, wait, what? I think this happened to me. Um, and I actually had one around uh, a babysitter who sexually abused me and um, had no recollection, had none. Like it, it wasn't something that I held on to growing up. It wasn't something that was a constant thought in my mind. Um, it was something that actually manifested really confusingly for me it was uh, I remember the first time and I was holding my my niece on my lap and I got really uncomfortable with it and I just remember thinking and she was getting ready for bed and it was an entirely innocent interaction she came and she she had on her pajamas and she came and sat on my lap and I just remember just freezing just freezing I didn't know where to put my hands I didn't know I, I just something about it wasn't okay with me and I didn't understand it um, and at the time I remember, uh, talking to my partner about it and just being like, I, mind blown, like, I don't know what just happened, but it was such an internal conflict and it was so painful. It was just this, this, my body hadn't forgotten, um, whatever that was, whatever that trauma was, whatever that draw was. And over the next few months and, and, you know, appointments with my psychologist, it, it came out that I remembered, um, I had a babysitter who he, uh, yeah, he would, he would take advantage of any alone time he had with me. And, um, 
it's it's weird it's weird how it manifested it's weird how it kind of came out for me and it's not uh yeah yeah it's just it's been this kind of revelation that only over the past few years have I really had to understand the effect it had on me because it's not it's not a you know this kind of upfront obvious this happened and it's controlled my whole life. It, it doesn't even control my life now. If anything, I am, uh, I'm intrigued seems like such a careless word, but I, I'm intrigued by the biological effect and the, and the, the memory of the trauma that my body holds and what my physical response is to that and have, have really kind of tried to look at it from that point of view and understanding how many things are perceived traumas in childhood and what effect it does have on us. Um, and I also, uh, I, I had a couple illnesses when I was younger too, that were, um, they were just very all encompassing. And, and that experience of being in the doctors every day and picking up bits and pieces of conversation that at that age, you're not developed enough to actually understand and what story you create and what manifests from that has just been this thing that I've had to undo. It's, it's just kind of like this unraveling. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's weird because I never thought trauma was my story. And I, I still don't know. I still don't know where it fits in terms of the magnitude of it, but it certainly exists. Yeah. And I think that's the problem is that people, th there's a tendency to focus on, ah, this, this is why Kendra's going through what she's going yeah. rather than this is yeah. one of the compounding elements that Kendra's going through. I mean, how many times did you get hit in the head as a goalkeeper? Was there oh. a TBI element? You know, I mean, there's so many things, but that, yeah. that memory trapped away has come up over and over and over again. A lot of the guests, you know, were acutely aware of what had happened, but it had been pushed down. And there were some, just like you said, a completely benign event sent a 30, 40 year old man or woman, you know, flying back into the age of, you know, five, eight, nine. And now you go, okay, well, maybe this is the missing piece of the puzzle of why I've been struggling so much for so many years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, like you said, certainly I had numerous head injuries. I had many diagnosed concussions. Um, and there's that element. There's a hereditary fact, you know, mental illness does live in my family. And, and so there's that potential. There's the, you know, there's so many what ifs. And I remember, you know, this other huge piece of my story that had nothing to do with my story that exactly, as you said, I, I wasn't going to share it. Um, and, and that was my sexuality. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a lesbian. And what? I know. <laughs> there it is. That's All right, it. interview over. I didn't realize this That's is a heterosexual it. show. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was this kind of piece that I, I was always quiet about because I didn't want that correlation. I didn't want that. Well, obviously, Kendra lives with mental illness. She's, she's, you know, dealing with issues around her sexuality, which, again, isn't my story. I, I mean, I, I happen to be a lesbian who lives with mental illness. I'm not living with mental illness because I'm a lesbian. Um, and, and so it's that kind of cross section of what part is it safe to share so that you don't lose the validity of your, of your story to somebody who may benefit from hearing what it is you've been through. Um, but yeah, like it was it forever, forever. I never spoke about it. I, I, I remember, and I remember being terrified to speak about it in some instances. I mean, I was uh, at one point doing a ton of work with a Catholic school board. And all I could think every time I walked through the door was, 
Like one, let's hope there's no smoke. And two, like, are they going to be okay? Are they going to escort me out of the school if I let this slip? Um, and so, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's tough, I think. And I only ever entered that conversation because uh, actually it was, it was the Sochi Olympics. It was uh, the Sochi Olympics around a lot of the conversation and the, the fear a lot of athletes were feeling around being in Sochi and, and having their sexuality be known and what type of discrimination and what they would face as a result of that. And I was asked to join a, a roundtable that the Canadian Olympic Committee was holding um, to really kind of discuss this and, and come up with, you know, some, some relevance around supporting these athletes. And I remember when they first reached out to me, I'm like, this isn't a stage I need. Like, I, I need to be able to share my journey the way I am. And I don't want it to be changed by that. I don't want people to all of a sudden have this direct kind of, I know why this all happened to Kendra and there's no mystery here. Um, and, and then I realized that that was something that was always safe for me. You know, I was I was very fortunate in my sport that it was never something that I didn't feel safe experiencing. My teammates knew that I had female partners. My teammates were supportive of that. It was never something I had to to hide or misrepresent. And it, it occurred to me in that moment and kind of changing the way I was looking at it, you know, that different perspective was hockey was really my only safe space when I was at my worst. When I was really sick, hockey was what kept me alive, I think. And had I not had that safe space because of my sexuality, would I have survived that? And in changing that perspective, I realized the value of, of you know, really offering to be a part of every conversation that I was invited into, uh, simply because even though I didn't necessarily see the relevance and even though it wasn't a, you know, a main theme in my plot, it, it didn't mean that it wasn't relevant to somebody else. And, and I think that that became important. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you were doing it for fellow athletes, fellow human beings, regardless of what yeah. the, the humanitarian issue was. Right. Right. Now, just if we could just kind of tangent off on that. So, so she was in the, uh, Russia, is that right? And they had the the homophobia element. So if you wouldn't mind, just educate us all on, you know, what the the feeling was from that country in a in a sport that's supposed to be global and, and accepting. I mean, there was there was a beautiful part of this Olympics that just went. There's a refugee team. They barely yeah. ever made the news because it's not Trump, Biden, whatever. But I think that was one of the most beautiful things that came out. So so just kind of educate us on that if you wouldn't mind. Well, and I'll be honest, I don't know all of the nuances, so I'm not going to profess to be to be the expert on it. But, you know, there was a criminality around homosexuality um, in Sochi. And I think that there's an internal conflict that comes from one being a part of an event that is being governed by or hosted by that type of discrimination and that type of inequality. I think that there's a certain human element that comes with the Olympics, which is, you know, athletes are putting their whole self into achieving that and to have to misrepresent themselves, I think, because of the host country's belief system and legal system. It, that's a challenge. You know, that's, that's, that's a conflict of, of conscience and of morale that, 
isn't supposed to be part of sport, but as we've learned, is very much so. And so I think there was, you know, those who felt as though they were misrepresenting themselves and their communities by participating in and offering, uh, you know, a spotlight to a country at a time with an issue that they didn't feel believed or deserved that. Uh, and I think there was also the real fear element. There was the what type of discrimination is going to happen and what is the potential for my safety to be in jeopardy uh, as an openly, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer. Am I putting myself at risk? And, and you know, it, to feel unsafe in that environment when you're when you're there experiencing something that is so entirely a passion and a life goal and so much of oneself. That's just such a conflict. Now, what was the, what was the resolution? What was decided after that? Uh, you know what? I think, uh, I think a lot of athletes uh, went and, and kind of went under the guise of being protected by the Olympic committees and being protected by the, the very nature of what the Olympics represents and that, that sense of inclusion. And I think that there are some athletes who chose ultimately not to participate simply because it, it either A, was beyond their sense of safety or B, um, they just felt like it was a misrepresentation to, to really follow through and, and offer that part of themselves to, to an event that they felt was let in and down. Yeah, what's well, interesting, I went to the Imperial War Museum in London um, a few weeks ago, and there was a very powerful image, and it was a an Auschwitz exhibit within it. And there was a very powerful image of, I think it was the Berlin, um, was the venue, you know, the, the Olympic Games, and Jesse Owens is standing on the first place platform after beating all the Aryan and every other you know, country that showed up. So it is a kind of dichotomy, because in one one side, you just refuse to go as a protest, the other side, you go, you smash everyone, and you stand on the first place podium as a proud athlete who happens to be gay, and you do it that way. So there's there's definitely two. But I know Jesse Owens' victory that day. I mean, I'm standing there in a museum, what eighty years later, and it's still as moving as it was then. Yeah, and I think it's it's a uh, it's tough, right? Because you want to see. You want to see that. You want to see that kind of show of resilience. You want to see that show of, um, you know, no, no different than you know the girls that are getting getting chased around the ice in hockey because the guys are trying to make a, a a point. You know, you want to see them kind of stand in the face of diversity and and show them. You know what? Look, my sexuality has nothing to do with my ability to be the best at what I'm doing. And at the same time, I have the utmost respect for those people who choose to to show that differently because not everybody's made to be an advocate. Not everybody wants to be a poster child. Not everybody is looking to be the voice. Some people just want the the ability to have that kind of autonomy and the freedom to choose what best serves their their sense of self and their energy in that situation. And I think that it's difficult. I mean, it's a toss-up. And you're going to get judgment either way, right? You're going to get judgment if you don't go. You're going to get judgment for showing up and, and representing something that some people aren't going to agree with. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I think if you're making that decision for your own sense of, of gratification, um, I mean, good good on them. Absolutely. That's why it's called choice. 
So, well, going back to your early life, in the podcast I mentioned before, I heard you talking about, as a young girl, having an infatuation with death. And you just touched on childhood illness. I'm assuming some of the things you picked up probably didn't sound very encouraging. So how did that factor into that obsession? And then walk me through... um your you know your mental health journey as a, as a young girl yeah so and I mean it's funny because I couldn't have walked you through my mental health journey as a young girl um these are all those revelations that come after the fact because when I was a young girl I was invincible I was I was untouchable I was a great athlete and I was going to play for team Canada and quite frankly that defined me um Looking back now and being able to interpret kind of my behaviors growing up, which didn't seem so abnormal to me growing up because because I was inside this and I was this was my life and it was just it was just reality. Um, I remember uh, I hated leaving home. I never wanted to go to sleepovers. I was that kid that I think my first like sleepover birthday party, I was probably 12 or 13 and and it was terrifying like it had to be set up for me to do this and my mom I needed to know that she would be there in 30 seconds if I called and and needed her to come get me um there was always kind of that underlying fear of you know my parents are going to be there tomorrow and I, I remember um that that prayer that like common prayer that a lot of parents did with their children growing up and it was that uh if I should die before I wake um, was the the line in it that I remember always used to catch me. It was just kind of this panic. Like every time I heard it, I'm like, hell do you mean if I should die before I wake? Like, is this my life? Am I never going to see you again? Am I, what is about to happen here? Like bedtime was trauma. Um, you know, and there was a lot of that. There was a lot of it that kind of played out throughout. I never wanted to go to camps um, and, and it started to develop into social anxiety. I hated being in groups of people. I hated having kind of that feeling like, you know, everybody was was laughing at me when I was in the room. Everybody was judging me when I was in the room. It's a very um, encompassing feeling. It's it's just this, you feel as though you're being judged 24 uh, seven. And then it progressed. I, I, you know, I did myself a disservice and, and through nobody's fault, I became um, entirely entranced. And I think part of it had to do with being uh, sick as a kid. And I think it had to do with the curiosity of it. Um, I had to have an autoimmune disease that, you know, when you hear discussions around it uh, at a very surface level, you hear things like, you know, you have to keep monitoring it and higher risk of becoming cancer. And, you know, you hear that as a kid and all of a sudden you've internalized for the rest of your existence that, oh my God, I'm going to get cancer and die. Like it's, there's just, there's no like, there's no buffer. There's no developmental understanding without communication to understand it as anything other than this is the word that all of the adults use and it affects so many people and so many people don't make it out of it. And, you know, cancer is like the disease you don't want. Um, and so to hear that young in life and, and as a possibility, um, it, it stuck, it just it, it internalized with me. And so as a young adult, I, I arguably was infatuated with knowing everything I could 
about possibly what I was going to go through and, and how horrible, like how absolutely horrible, but I was reading this series of books um, by an author by the name of Lurleen McDaniel. And I, <laughs> I kid you not, like every book is about a young adult getting sick and dying. Like it's, it's uh, why any part of me or anybody in my life thought it was okay for me to be reading that. But in, you know, by the same occasion, you know, you, you might think you're doing a good thing. You're, you're educating yourself on, on the realities around death and dying. Um, but no, that's not how it was manifesting for me. And, and I was becoming increasingly and increasingly more full of information that then turned into this situation where it was like, you know, I'd, I'd get a stomach cramp and my word, like my world is ending or I'd have a headache and that must mean I had a brain tumor. And so it, it just kind of kept compounding and very internally though, this wasn't something I was sharing with anybody. This wasn't something I was living out loud. It was a very internalized, um, you know, process. I, I, there'll be many people in my life who will be shocked to hear this because it's not, it's, it's something that, was a very private journey for me. Um, and so, yeah, I think that these things just kind of continued to affect the way I was behaving. But at the same time, it's easy to kind of, well, whatever. She doesn't want to sleep over at her friend's house or whatever. She wants to be home or whatever. For some reason, she needs to hear us say, I love you. And yes, I'll see you in the morning before she falls asleep without them recognizing that I'm asking for your you're like, you're, this is a binding contract. I need you to tell me like, I will see you in the morning, kid. I love you. Like, and in their mind, it's, you know, that's just the pleasantry you say to your kids before bed. But to me, it was like, we're shaking on this. This is like, this is a contract here and you better be there in the morning when I wake up and I better wake up in the morning. And so these kind of things just became my, my normal, my, as normal as that is. And it, it just kind of kept going and kept going. And on the peripheral, nobody saw it. You know, nobody saw it. I, I was I was a great athlete. I was kicking ass at every sport I played. I was a hockey player. I was a great tennis player. I was a fastball player. You know, I had, I had friends. I had a great family. I had, I didn't have any reason for any of this to be happening inside of me from the outside. So nobody knew it was there. So with that, you refer to hockey as your happy place. So, you know, obviously there are, there are some very positive, I hate the word coping mechanisms. It sounds like you're, you know, you're trying to stop sinking, but there are some very positive outlets that can be very nurturing. So amidst all this kind of turmoil in your head, talk to me about what hockey was for you. Well, so that's a, that answer is twofold for me. So one hockey and sports and my entire life as it existed around that being my focus, it, it was inadvertently allowing me to cope through what was already a very well-established mental illness. Um, I was doing all of the right things without realizing I was doing all of the right things. I was staying social. I was outside. I was active. I was eating well to stay active. I was, you know, sleeping well because you had to sleep well. So you'd play well the next day. I was doing all of the things that lend themselves to good mental health minus the specifics around psychology, psychiatry, medication. Um, 
and that was my life. That was my routine. So naturally, I was getting by. I was treading water by having that way of life. Um, and then fast forward a few years, I, I got into a car accident after high school, and it kind of laid me up. I, I fractured a vertebrae in my back. And for the first time in my life, I was... I was not living that routine. So by default, I had now eliminated all of these things. I'm 17 years or 18 years old. I'm by myself part of the time in Toronto because my mother was elected at the time. I was forced out of my hometown to, to avoid the politics of being a student in the government my mother worked in. Um, I'm in a private school, so I'm in a condo in a city that is a gazillion times the size of where I grew up with none of my friends. Now I'm laying on a couch because I got a busted back and I'm not active. I'm not leaving my apartment. I'm not getting outside. I'm not eating well because what teenager left to their own devices, you know, is eating well. And, and mom was around, but she was busy. So she didn't, she didn't notice that I wasn't, you know, I was ordering pizza and I was ordering sushi from downstairs and I was taken out from the restaurant downstairs. I wasn't, I, I just, I gave up all of my healthy habits, um, again, without realizing it, very much without realizing it. And all of a sudden, all of the realities of what it is to live with, you know, my diagnosis and the whole spectrum of mood disorders that I, that I was already living with, uh, came to a head and all of a sudden it, it was there. Um, but on the other side, you know, hockey for me, when I say it's part of the reason I survived this, you know, when I got, when I finally did get diagnosed, fast forward a year from then, um, I was given a choice, you know, my psychologist, my doctor, my parents, you know, they basically said to me, you're not gonna lay down and die. You, you need to pick one thing to stick with. We don't care what it is, work, school, hockey, you want to take up knitting, you want to be a ballerina, it doesn't matter you have to have a commitment, you have to have something to live for, you have to have a purpose. And hockey was the only thing I could tolerate. And at that point, uh, I had been forced to quit Team Canada already. So it, it was conflict in and itself. But I still managed to do it. That was the only thing I left my apartment for at that time, other than to see my psychologist or my doctor, like, the only thing I could physically make myself do was play hockey and I hated it. Like there were years there. I hated it. I didn't hate the game. Being on the ice was my safe space. It was the only place where that chaos didn't exist. It was the only space where I wasn't in sheer terror 24 seven, the time I was out there. Um, and it's not that I wasn't having panic attacks. It's not that I wasn't still dealing with those issues, but it was, more controlled in that environment for whatever reason. And I think everything that hockey taught me and being an organized sport and being coached and having teammates, I think a lot of those things ultimately transferred into some of the things that allowed me to push myself to get better. Um, but yeah, at the very primal notion of this, it was very much, it, it was, it was all I was living for, for, for a while. And again, there's, there's such a powerful, um, parallel again with the fire service. And I actually wrote about this in my book. I had a back injury a few years ago and I went from, I mean, I, I love the fire service. It was a very difficult decision from a profession point of view to, 
transition out and start doing this full time from a department point of view, very easy based on the last place I worked. Um, but, uh, you know, when, when you take a step back and you look at, as you said, identity. So whether it's a firefighter, whether it's a hockey goalie, you know, that's who you are. You've got your tribe, your team, your station. You know, you've got your physicality. I'm a high level athlete, tactical athlete. And then all that's taken away. And now, as you said, you're on your own. You can't move. You don't have your tribe around you. And you, you were ge- geographically plucked from your other, you know, tribe as well, as far as the people that you grew up around. That is like ripping everything apart. And if there's anything simmering underneath, all of a sudden it's boiling over. Oh, yeah. It, it was the perfect storm. By far, it was the perfect storm. So you mentioned about, um, you know, the, the incident with, with Team Canada. I'd love to kind of visit that. So at that point, what were you dealing with on a daily basis? And then talk to me about that kind of that uh, tipping point when you went to, to the team. And, and sadly, that wasn't the answer that, you know, you were hoping for. Yeah, so it's uh yeah, let's visit that. That'll be fun. Um, I, uh, you know, it, it became kind of clear to me once I started to transition into women's hockey and the Olympics became a possibility. Uh, that became it. That that was my goal. That was my focus. That's what I wanted. And I was very fortunate. I was carded with Team Canada um, for a couple of years before that. And what that means is they had identified me. I was part of their program. I was part of the pool of athletes that were in the Canadian hockey program. And at that point, what's left is to fight for your spot to make that roster. And so at that point, kind of after I broke my back, um, I had a couple of months where it was just, I was very focused on physical rehab. You know, I was young and silly and thought the only thing that mattered was being ready for the next hockey season. And so doing what the doctor said and the therapist said and physio said and Cairo said was, that was it. That was my, that was my summer. And I healed very well from that very quickly. Uh, Gratefully I was in good shape when it happened and it wasn't a catastrophic injury. It was, it was what it was, but you know, best case of the worst case scenario. And uh, so as I was kind of getting back on my feet and I was starting to feel better physically, that was when that perfect storm was kind of brewing. And, and I started to feel the physical manifestation of what my mental illness would become. And that started as, you know, I couldn't breathe. I, I felt like my heart was coming out of my chest. My throat's closing. I can't swallow. I can't, my, I can't get a breath in. My arms are going numb. My, I feel like I'm going to pass out. And I mean, I'm a fairly logical person, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about all those commercials we have on TV that are like, if you're feeling this, 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 and this, you're probably having a heart attack. And I was like, okay, well, crap, I'm having a heart attack. I better go to the hospital. So I went to the hospital a few times. This has happened. And every time they're like, no, you're good. You're good. Check my blood, check my ECG, check, you know, blood pressure, heart rate, blah, blah, blah. You're fine. You're good. Go home. And so kept going home, told me I was fine. And, you know, that would, that would kind of appease me for a few days and then it would happen again. I'm like, oh, well, this time it's definitely a heart attack or I'm definitely about to die. So I'd go back and it started happening more and more regularly. And then it started getting to a place where like I couldn't eat. My stomach was just on fire 24 seven. It was just, I was in pain, so I couldn't eat. And, you know, it started 
getting to be this weird, constant pressure, vertigo feeling in my head all the time. I couldn't drive anymore. And it just kept getting worse. And everybody just kept telling me I was fine. Um, which was really patronizing because there was nothing fine about what I was feeling. But at the same time, who, who am I to say? And so I went to my doctor, my doctor did the normal doctor thing and sent me to five specialists and every specialist ran me through every test and everybody told me how healthy I was. And that did not align with how I was feeling at all. But at this point, I'm coming up to Team Canada tryouts now and I have no clue what to do. And at this point, the only way that I'm managing anything now is to start drinking every day because I it's the only reprieve I'm getting from feeling like I'm having a heart attack every day. So I'm drinking, I'm trying to numb this, I am getting no answers, I am freaking out because I've got Team Canada tryouts coming up finally. And this is everything I've worked for in my life and I'm falling apart. And I remember you know, I, I I got out to camp that day and I it, it was a two-week tryout in Calgary, which is like a four-hour flight from here, which was hell. And I got out there and, of course, now I'm not drinking because you're not drinking at Team Canada camp and I'm not doing anything to manage this because nobody could tell me what I'm trying to manage. And I get out there and it's the worst day ever. You know, I'm trying to hide it. And that's all I can think is hide it you've got to hide this, you've got to fake it, you've got to pretend you're perfect, because you're not going to make Team Canada if you're not at your best. And so I do my on ice, I find a washroom, I break down, I do my off ice, I found a stairway, I break down by seven o'clock that night, I was, I was ready to lay down and die. Like there was just, I had nothing left. And so I went to the coaches, I lied to them, I, I told them, my grandma happens to live here. She just got rushed to the hospital. My dad's flying out. He was already there because we had secretly arranged for him to already be there because I wasn't okay. Um, I left the the tryouts that night and I went down to the hotel where my father was staying and I just, I collapsed on the floor at the bottom of his bed and spent the entire night in tears trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And I had nothing. I, I couldn't come up with an answer. I had nothing. And by the next morning, I still had no clue. And so I went in and I met with the coaches of team Canada. And at this point now I'm, I'm just falling apart and I'm trying to explain to them, you know, I've been to the doctors, nobody can figure out what's wrong with me, but something's not right. Like I'm not okay. And I, uh, I told them I had to leave camp and they actually, uh, asked me if it would help any to know that I made team Canada, that, uh, they had already, they had already decided that, that they wanted me on the roster, that they wanted me to, to play for Team Canada. And uh, I, the answer was no, it, it didn't matter. I, I couldn't get through another day. I, I could not get through another day, and that was the day I quit Team Canada. And uh, I was on a red-eye home to Toronto that night, having just walked away from my whole life. So when you hear people say, you know, what's wrong with you? Just pull yourself together. I think, <laughs> I think that's a, a very powerful story. And thank you for sharing that because obviously it wasn't a fun place for you to go. But what a, what a way of kind of portraying the absolute hell that people like yourself are in, that you were turned down, the, that you've been working for ever since you were four years old. 
and you get that opportunity and the the negative side you know what you're going through still outweighs that so i mean firstly thank you i appreciate your your honesty and going there so again walk me through after that i mean that must have been crushing and just adding even more turmoil to what you're already going through and then when you finally actually found the right person to stand in in front of to get the diagnosis yeah so i uh I luckily was such a shell of myself at that point. I don't think I had to go through the magnitude completely of what I had just walked away from. I don't know that rationally I could, I don't think I had the capacity to place that yet. Um, over the next five days, I just kind of existed between uh, my condo and Toronto. And there was this little parkette outside my condo that had a bench and I would just kind of take turns between being a, some shadow of myself in, in both of those places trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do now. And Team Canada called me actually and they asked me if I'd go see a doctor. The, you know, they wanted help. They had a doctor they thought might be able to to help me out. And I remember being super excited. I'm like, this is Team Canada. Like Team Canada, Team Canada hockey. Like these have to be the best doctors in the world. Um and I was excited. I'm like, finally, I'm going to get answers. I'm going to sort this out. And then they told me she was a sports psychologist. And I was so pissed off. I was so offended. I just remember thinking, I'm not crazy. Like, this isn't in my head. I don't, I don't need your shrink. I need your, like, I need your diagnostician extraordinaire. I need to know what's wrong with me. Um, but at the time, I was still smart enough to realize that if Team Canada needs to hear from a psychologist, I'm okay, then I better go. And so I went and I met my psychologist, um, had a couple really awkward appointments that were just super uncomfortable staring contests because I had no clue what to do with a psychologist. And uh, then I realized I better come up with something because I, I clearly didn't want to have to keep coming to this woman. So I'd, I'd like to get this over with as quickly as possible. And so I, I started racking my brain and, and thought about something I could talk about. And I remember that car accident I had after high school. And I was like, that must be it. Like, let's, let's psychoanalyze my car accident so I can get out of your office here. Cause this is, this is just, I don't need to be here. And so we did, um, after two weeks of really intense therapy, I was cured and, uh, I left her office and I called my parents big misunderstanding all is good and I I hoped that you know my psychologist called Team Canada told them nope you know that's I'm the wrong person to help her she needs a real doctor real doctor um and then I realized how sick I really was about a week later I just I I couldn't function anymore I couldn't leave my apartment without that feeling like I was about to drop out of a heart attack I couldn't get in a car I couldn't eat I stopped eating um it just made me feel so sick to eat I stopped eating uh I got to a point where I was petrified of sleeping I was terrified if I went to sleep I wouldn't wake up and I was even more terrified that if I managed to fall asleep I'd wake up in the middle of the night feeling like I was having a heart attack and I'd be by myself and I would die and nobody would be there to help me so then I had to have somebody stay with me 24 7 because I couldn't be alone now um and that kind of that became my 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 life and shortly after i i remember i picked up the phone and i called my mom and when she answered all i said was i'm not going to be here tomorrow i i 
I don't even think I wanted to die. I don't, I don't think it was about wanting to die. I just, I, I couldn't conceive of existing one more day like this. Like I just, I couldn't fathom still being alive the next day. And, uh, <laughs> turns out that your mom's not just going to listen to you say that and do nothing. So mom got to Toronto pretty quick and, and took me to a doctor and, one doctor is diagnosing me with anxiety and depression and taking me to a psychiatrist who's a green and all of a sudden I've got meds and back to my psychologist who I remember laying there just, you know, listening to her explain my diagnosis to my mother. And my diagnosis at that point was a generalized anxiety disorder coupled with a severe panic disorder, severe panic attacks, agoraphobia, OCD, and clinical depression. I'm an overachiever, so we just thought we'd try them all out. And, uh, yeah, that was it. That was, that was my sentence. And that's exactly how it felt. Um, I went home that day and I, I started my meds and my meds made my stomach feel worse. So then I started meds to help my stomach deal with the meds. And then I was wired and couldn't sleep. So then I started meds to help me sleep and I took my meds. I, I would leave my apartment only to see my psychologist or play hockey um that was it that was my life for five years for five years after that diagnosis that was my existence and after five years of it I was ready to give up I just I had a resounding moment of why am I doing this this is this is not life this is not what I want this is not this isn't life um and I realized that I was either done or I needed to figure out what the hell I was living with and, and figure it out and somehow gratefully chose that path and uh, went on the journey of learning how meds work for mental illness and found the meds that worked for me, which isn't a cure, but gets rid of those extremes in a way that it allows you to start learning how to care for mental illness and, and all of the things that I needed to be doing to, to really affect that change. and. Uh, that was a, it was a long journey. It was a long fight. Um, you know, it's, it's no secret that there's a, it's a difficult system to navigate the mental health system. And it's not one that is readily available. And it's not one that is easy to understand. And uh, especially back then, it was a lot of work to really figure out how to get help and what help would look like and, and where to access it. And thankfully, after five years, um, and the help of a of a really stellar psychologist who I who I grew to love very much. So, um, it, you know, I, I found myself on the other side of it. I found myself in recovery, and you know, the 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 most joyous moment of my recovery was realizing that I had managed to go through this hell of ten years of my life without ever being honest about it. You know, it was again, I, I hit it. Nobody knew. Nobody had a clue. They all thought I hurt my back and disappeared. Um, nobody knew. And uh, that was the thing I was most proud of after 10 years because it. Uh, I never wanted to explain how I went from making Team Canada to not being able to be alone in my apartment. It wasn't a conversation I wanted to have. And so I just, I, I got on with my life and, and prayed I could just leave this all behind me. Well, it's, I mean, such a powerful 
you know, journey that you were on and, and what's interesting about your story is meds did work, but as you said, the right meds, not just a kind of knee-jerk prescription that then, you know, created a kind of um, a domino effect of more meds, which made you feel worse, which probably heightened your anxiety, and now you're in this vicious circle. I heard you mention as well about some lifestyle choices, which as an athlete, you know, again, we think that we've got all that stuff nailed down already. So talk to me about some of the positive outlets that you found that that continue to improve your uh, healing. Yeah, well, I mean, right away, uh, it, it was explained pretty early on and, and uh, pretty in a way that didn't really leave a lot of room for interpretation that alcohol is 100% going to be a negative. Um, there is zero occasion where alcohol is anything other than a depressant. So if you're dealing with a mood disorder, it is going to have a negative effect on you 100% of the time. So I quit drinking. Um, I haven't had a drink now in my goodness, 22 years, maybe. Um, and, uh, my psychologist was huge on the psychology of, of running and cardiovascular activity and the effect that has on the brain and, and the chemicals in our body. And that was awesome, but it was also lost on me. Cause like you said, I'm an athlete. I mean, if you're telling me physical activity is going to cure mental illness, you've got to, I misdiagnosed, like that doesn't make sense. I've been training since I was four. Um, but it was very different. It was very different to figure out uh, the difference between staying in shape to play a sport versus purposefully doing cardiovascular activity for a prescribed amount of time on a daily basis because it has an, a natural impact on a mood disorder. And so I very begrudgingly became a runner. Um, and I hate running. Like I'm not one of those people who's like, I can't, well, I am now. But I was never one of those people that was like, give me my running shoes, I want to run. Like, if you're not chasing me, and if I don't have somewhere I have to get to in a hurry, there's no good reason for it. But I started to realize that as long as I was consistent with it, it, it had an effect. It, it had an effect on the severity of any of my symptoms. It helped me to manage so many of my symptoms. And, you know, then we started to get into things like my psychologist was big on you got to try yoga. And it... it I play hockey. I'm not a yoga. I don't, I don't own tights. Um, but then I, I realized I, I should really open myself to trying what people are telling me because clearly I wasn't sorting it out on my own. So I went and I started yoga and I, at my first yoga class, I couldn't walk for three days after because I did it like an athlete, right? Like I'm going to get in the hardest pose and I'm going to hold the hardest pose for as long as I can because I should be able to do that. I'm an, I'm an athlete. Um, it was very lost on me in the beginning, but uh, started to learn the the effectiveness of controlling your breathing and mindfulness and really learning how to take that stress out of your body and control that chaos in my mind and got to a place where using those tools, I could I could directly affect my panic attacks. I could directly affect my anxiety. And you know, then I just kind of started getting obsessed with recovery. And it was, you know, well, what's what's nutrition's play in this? And it was learning that wheat flour has a direct correlation to mood disorders, which sucks. I mean, it's not fair. And that, you know, foods that are high in sugar or processed foods also have direct correlations to mood disorders. And again, entirely unfair, but without being an extremist, 
if you eat really healthy, like 80, 90% of the time and, and just limit the intake of the things that have a negative effect on you, you notice the difference, um, you know, sleep. And, and it's funny that Disney movie inside out that one about like, you know, what happens in our brains and all of our emotions, it's profound. Like if you ever want the like best mental health for dummies tool, go watch that movie because it's, you know, it's that whole concept of what's what our bodies do when we're asleep. And 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 in fact, you learn that, uh, you know, when we sleep, our brains are repairing themselves. Our brains aren't asleep. Our brains, that's that's their time to repair. So if you're not getting a good sleep and you're putting your brain through a workout every day, it's never recovering. You you wouldn't run a marathon and then just go run another marathon without sleeping and eating between. So why do you think you can do that with your life? Um, and it was kind of all these, you know, innuendos that when you put them all together, it sounds like kind of a no-brainer healthy lifestyle. But when you give it the severity and the attention and focus, that is, if I do not stick to this routine, if I am complacent with this, I will be less healthy because of it. And it is a phenomenal difference. Yeah, well, it's again, it's so interesting to hear because like you said, an athlete being told to exercise seems like a complete, you know, Mm-hmm. you know preaching to the choir but when i think about it and i'm thinking you know you're on the ice you're you know you're you're drilling there's a yeah. focus on the puck there's a focus on yeah. protecting your goal but when you think about the emdr concept stimulating left right left right and you get you just go run and maybe you are thinking of some of the things that are bothering you and they're starting to be processed because you're left right left right I see this with people talking about surf therapy, with kayak therapy, with, you know, with running. I mean, it really does make a lot of sense when you break it down versus whatever sport you normally play. Yeah. Well, and, and there's also the, like, the obvious biologies of what it is to be outside, what it is to be, you know, social or with other people or interacting with nature. You know, there's there's nuances with all of it that we don't put any thought into we don't put any thought into biologically what happens when you put your hands in dirt i mean there's actually a scientific reaction that happens between the chemicals and and the 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 dirt itself in our hands that produces good feelings you know there's so many of these things that we're never taught to see them as a as a as a resource as a as a strategy we just take them for granted and we tend to fall away from them as we get older and you know when you really kind of bring yourself back into that and understand the basic premise of controlling your breathing or you know giving your mind a break and taking time to stay social you know we live in a world where everything's on fast forward it's it's how much can we get done how fast and and we're failing if we're not doing it all but our productivity is a portion of what it could be because we get away from the, but if I took half an hour to sit down and have a coffee and have a talk and, and do something that's actually good for my, my person, um, I'm going to be 10 times better at what I got to do next. But we shy away from those things as they're inconvenience or they're just, we don't have time for them. And it's shocking, you know, how, until you're forced into a place and I'm guilty of it until you're forced into a place where you realize if I don't make time for myself, I'm not going to survive this. You know, it's, it's a no brainer. You know, everybody's like, well, how do you run every day? I don't have a choice. I, I don't enjoy it. When it's like minus 30 out or when it's pouring out or when it's, 
I could come up with a thousand good reasons why I don't want to go run. And I could come up with a thousand great excuses as to why I'm not going to do it. But I'm the only one that's going to suffer. I'm the only one who's going to going to have a negative reaction to not doing those things. And so much of learning to manage my mental health was really kind of reevaluating those things and, and putting the proper pieces in place and not being complacent about it. Yeah, and it's such a strong parallel with what we've seen the last year and a half. As you said, this the same thing that applies to mental health applies to physical health. And you know, Absolutely. it's it's just killed me watching what some governments have been saying to their people. Don't go outside. You know, don't see the sunlight. Stay inside, stay locked down. You know, we'll we'll close the gyms, but we'll keep fast food open. I mean, when you look at it, it's absolute insanity and that, and I've seen you know, a, a very visible ripple effect that people now are really starting to hurt from from this. So, you know, what should have happened, I think, is I want you to all pretend that you are going to get COVID-19. So starting today, start doing these things that will improve the probability that you're going to get out the other side. I want you to run. I want you to get outside. I want you to ground. Take your shoes off. Stand in the the, the grass. You know, exercise. Think about what you eat. Think about how you sleep. And so, you know, the, the, the beautiful thing about what you've told me is it doesn't matter who's listening and what their life looks like. Every single person would benefit if they did exactly what you said. Yeah. Well, and I mean, in, in that instance, yes. I mean, I, 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 I will separate it from, I don't think everybody would benefit from getting COVID-19, but no, no, I no. do think everybody. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's make sure that's understood. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's just throw that in there. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we have this natural response where we go the extreme and fear guides us there and, and fear is real. I mean, fear, fear keeps us alive. So not only is it real, but it's powerful. Um, but when we, when we become irrational in that fear, which so many fears and then phobias become, it's very difficult to, to exist in, in a day-to-day way that it's not affecting us. And I think that, you know, with COVID and with, um, with the inundation of, again, information that isn't necessarily reliable, I, I mean, it, it's difficult to navigate that. It's difficult to navigate the unknown on the best of days. But when the unknown is potentially life-threatening, it becomes this whole other level of fear. And, you know, I think that there's a lot to be said to guiding people in a safe and useful way to pivot and not have the I'm shut down and that means I can't leave my home. No, but it means you can still exist safely within the the suggested protocol in a way that allows you to stay healthy and and positively influences your life. I mean, arguably, you're in a situation where, yeah, you've got to create a new routine. And yes, you can create a safe routine, but your safe routine doesn't have to be a literal isolation. It, it needs to encompass the things that are healthy and, and positive for you. Absolutely. Well, you touched on sleep deprivation. So I want to get to the fire service in just a second. Um, but before we do, after you started really kind of getting hold of the the tools that were working for you, did you kind of find yourself back in the hockey space? And if so, where at what point did you kind of top out that second time? So, I mean, because I never, my struggle within the hockey space was, (laughs) there's an underlying commonality to this theme here. It was very private. It was very, again, 
my teammates didn't know what I was going through. They didn't realize it was taking me three hours to get to the arena because I'd pull over 20 times to, to have a panic attack on the way there. You know, my trainer and my coaches were the only ones on the bench who who knew my trainer had like my Ativan in her pocket in case it got so catastrophic. And, you know, I, I would be sipping electrolytes just to try to not pass out on the ice because it was so draining. Like the, the, the level of, of exhaustion that comes from constantly being affected by anxiety is just astronomical. Um, but nobody knew, like nobody knew. So to the rest of the world, to my teammates, to uh, until I started sharing my journey, it was like, what, you know, what are you talking about? You know, you've just always been in the net back there. Like you've been, and, and I prided myself in that. I prided myself in being able to keep that secret. And, and I don't anymore. I mean, now I understand that, you know, it, it was so much harder because of that, but in terms of how hockey played out for me, it, it was a continuation. I mean, unfortunately, when you when you leave Team Canada and you ultimately get diagnosed with, you know, a slew of mental illness, um, you, you kind of know that you've you've signed off on that. You kind of know they're not going to come knocking on your door to to invite you back. But in terms of my performance as a goalie. I certainly maintained that level and, and was able to to play at that level. I continued to play in the, um, you know, variously named highest level of women's hockey leagues in in North America uh, up until I retired. I retired about, uh, my goodness, about 12 years ago now. But I did maintain it throughout it and, and happily. Um, it, you know, it was some of the best uh, moments of my life. And, and I'm grateful that I got to continue at that level even after I had, uh, you know, ha- I had been forced to walk away from Team Canada. Beautiful. No, and that's great to hear because, I mean, regardless of the name of the team, you're still doing what you loved. So yeah. I'm intrigued then, especially when we talk about sleep quality. So walk me through your journey into the fire service. <laughs> what, you don't think there's like a natural progression here? <laughs> You can't leave your apartment for five years. You should be a firefighter. I feel like there's something missing in between. (laughs) I don't, I feel like it's just like part of it. it Doesn't your resume read that way? Um, You know, I, I started sharing my story in 2010 and, and through word of mouth, it's kind of become this journey of sharing my journey with others and, you know, in schools and corporate and first responders and professional teams with athletes, with individuals, um, really everyone, because who's not affected really. Uh, and at the end of the day, um, first response kind of became an area that I was, I was really interested in, in, in working with, you know, a lot of the departments who were seeking guidance to a set up peer support strategies and critical incident stress management teams. And I did some work with the government here to help implement those strategies for departments and the more and more I got exposed to it, the more and more I started to kind of recognize those parallels that you've mentioned throughout this conversation, you know, that, that, that team-like environment, that physicality that comes with it. Um, for me, the, the desire to help others and, and show up for others, and also my belief that there was an opportunity to affect change and, and affect uh, a piece of the culture within the fire service that perhaps is still kind of holding on to the 
the we're unaffected we're we're not bothered by everything we see every day we're not touched by this it's you know we're untouchable we're untouchable and so here i am working with a bunch of the the chiefs and the deputy chiefs and the the different departments to help them figure out or manage their own issues um again behind the scenes as it always is and it it just kind of became more and more of a draw to me and it was funny because, you know, when I applied, it wasn't lost on me that when you Google my name, you're going to see that I live with this. You know, my my diagnosis isn't a well-kept secret. It, it's something I've been broadcasting now for 10 years in hopes to to help other people through these things. Um, so for me, it was kind of the, you know, we chuckle about it, but how do I present this? How do I present this to somebody who's going to say, you know, so what happens when, you know, you're, you get a horrible call and, and it's, uh, you know, it's traumatic or it's hard to see, or what happens when you're forced into a situation that is um, abnormally stressful or, you know, some of the horrible things that we have to deal with on the job. And ironically, I mean, those are the things I've been training for for the past 20 years. Those are the things that I'm expert at now. Those are the things that, you know, you don't learn in the gym. You, you learn by practicing that resiliency and you learn by putting strategies in place to manage how your body and mind respond to stress and chaos. And, and that's my existence, you know, so it almost became a selling point for me to kind of say, look, like not not only um, is this my reality, but it's a reality that I think could be an asset. It's a reality that allows me to deal with clients and potential patients in a way that perhaps some other people aren't comfortable in doing, you know, dealing with that, that anxiety and that panic in those uh, tragic situations and, and communicating with people who are in, um, you know, in a state that they're not necessarily uh, rationally thinking themselves. And, and, you know, I have a set of skills and I have training and I have the ability to kind of uh, interact in a way that perhaps a lot of others don't. And beyond that, you know, when you when you put the question back to me, how am I going to deal with one of those situations that is traumatic and life shattering and sad and tragic? And, you know, arguably, I'm going to deal with it the same way I deal with all of those pieces of my life that I was forced to deal with and practice and train. Um, and I haven't been wrong. I mean, I haven't been wrong in that, yeah, we see some horrible things and we deal with some horrible things. But at the end of the day, you know, when I know I've been affected or when I know I may be affected by something I've just dealt with, I know to reach out to my psychologist or I know to, you know, go for a run and deal with it. I know to talk about it. I know not to bury it. I know how to manage, um, you know, kind of the response that our bodies go through. Uh, to those situations so ironically it it has been an asset i think that's a perspective that a lot of people don't really understand is the you know post-traumatic growth for example and you know when people say to me about talking to the kind of alphas of the world like how how do you talk to them about mental health one of the great analogies i think so not even an analogy a parallel is i was talking to uh, a professional baseball player and he was talking about entering the flow state and there was one specific moment in his career that he remembers you know to this day but he says you need three elements you need high level of training those repetitions you need high level of stress 
which we both have in the fire service, but then you need to have that calm mind. So if you want to be a high-level operator, SWAT officer, firefighter, by acknowledging that side, that mental side, and working through it and find out what finding out what works for you, not only are you going to heal from whatever's going on in your mind, you're actually going to be a better version of whatever profession you were in than if you left it unaddressed. So, you know, the whole the whole post-traumatic growth, I think it's this this very curious kind of thought because I think that there's this there's a couple different lines of thinking when it comes to dealing with traumatic events and and kind of how we get over it and how we overcome it. And, you know, there's that perspective of, you know, everything happens for a reason. And and some people embrace that and hold on to that and, and try to find some solace in that. And I, I think it's a uh, perhaps a lazy perspective in terms of um, really the value to, to growth afterwards, because I think we can hold on to this whole, well, it happened and that's great and let's get over it. And it happened for a reason. So we don't have to look into this. But I think that what we neg- neglect to do in that instance is to really kind of discover the impact of what that had on us. So I'm one of those people who thinks certainly these things have happened and and we have to endure them and go through them. And we could certainly find the best parts of it to teach ourselves valuable lessons. And I think that there's kind of this natural progression where ultimately in life, you get over things, you, you get over events that happen, you get over um, trauma, you get over and and beyond these things but in a sense you, you always live with an internalized an internalized version of that that you can't just get over and i think that the failure for a lot of people is thinking they've succeeded in getting over on over something when they put it behind them until they find themselves in a similar situation again and really discover that they didn't take any lessons from what they got through they simply just put it behind them and i think that the benefit to really kind of analyzing and going through trauma and going through these events that create situations that have a lasting effect is to sit in what makes you uncomfortable, sit in what is hard, sit in those challenges and really learn why they're having certain impacts on you or how they're affecting you. And then really kind of breaking down different strategies to deal with those emotions and deal with the behaviors that come from those those occurrences. And in that sense, you can absolutely use these challenges and these moments as teaching tools and tools that can enable you to be better prepared to deal with it should you face it again, better prepared to deal with anything that may trigger residual effects from those traumas. And in a place where moving forward, you can almost preventatively maintain some level of, of readiness and preparedness for what you may face again, knowing that it could, could arise. Well, speaking of, of you know new traumas, I, I can't remember if we touched on this, so everyone listening, we split this into two. We kind of sat back down to finish this interview up. But you had told me about um, you know being very, very excited about a pregnancy together and then losing a child. So that's a pretty significant trauma after all the stuff that you dealt with before. Yeah. So walk me through that. And then again, I mean, how was that journey in and out of that you know horrendous sadness that you guys had together? Well, and again, I mean, it comes in so many layers that unravel themselves um, both naturally and with force over time, you know. So the process um, as the 
you know, non, non-biological, non, I wasn't carrying our son when, when we lost him. Um, so immediately my role in it was very different. My role was very much a support and a caregiver. And how do I negotiate this in a way to a, um, kind of carry, carry Christy through the process and try to support her and give her the space she needed to deal with it as well as, trying to navigate that with a two and a half year or sorry, a two year old. And at the same time, dealing with the level of grief that comes with losing a, a child. And it, it was exactly that it was a juggling act. It was very much, you know, I had to prioritize how I was dealing with it. And, and as such, for me personally, everybody else's well being kind of took a front seat. And knowingly I was putting my own grief and my own process um, lower down on, on the kind of the, the to-do list just because it was, you know, I needed to make sure everybody else got through it. Okay. And I, I somehow that was the prior prioritization that worked in my mind. And, and so for the first while it was very functional. It was very, you know, proactively reaching out to everybody who knew we were expecting a child any day now um, and, and letting them know what had happened. And, it, you know, such a surreal process to have to outwardly experience that and include so many really random people in, in kind of notifying them of what had happened. But it's such a simple and common um, conversation to have come up when you know somebody's pregnant to check in and say, how are you feeling? Or are you excited? Or, and unfortunately, losing a child at 32 weeks, Christy still presented as pregnant. I mean, that that just doesn't go away as soon as you deliver a child. So then it's wanting to make sure she's not faced with, you know, the local barista making her coffee and saying, you know, how are you feeling? And, and are you excited? And are you ready? Is it a boy or a girl? Um, and trying to really kind of cut off any of those awkward moments that I could. And so there was this time period where it was like, I'm walking up and down the street, letting everybody know that we had just lost our son and I'm going to everywhere that she frequents to make sure that they know. And I'm, you know, because of my social platform and because of what I do, I'm rather out there. And so having to announce it and having to really just ask people to bring their, their questions and their their comments to me just to give her the space to deal with it. And all the while kind of fooling myself into thinking, I'm also processing this at the same time, but, but you know, really just kind of pushing myself aside. And so, you know, as time passed, it was kind of, there became a few more moments where my own grief kind of snuck in and it was my own process that I had to start facing of how do I manage this? And you know, experiencing that loss for the first time, really a little bit after the fact. And so, uh, again, back to that feeling of like, I kind of convinced myself I had gotten over it, so to speak, in in essence, in a, in a place where I thought I was far enough ahead of it that I was okay. Um, and then, you know, you pull work into the equation, and it's, you know, you're you're going to inevitably get that call, you're going to inevitably get that call where you're dealing with, uh, you know, an infant loss. And, um, you know, you can you can 
don't get me wrong, I think that that affects any first responder, anybody in that situation with, you know, a tremendous amount of, of emotion. I, I don't, I think it's a unique situation. And one, I think if you ask any first responder, it's, it's the call nobody wants to get, obviously. Um, but being in that position and, and that first time I kind of got that, you know, VSA infant call and, and, just the experience of it and and being around the people involved and the parents involved and and really trying to navigate it in a way that removed me from the situation which gratefully I was very able to do because I I do so much work um in preparation in 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 kind of knowing that because of my mental health issues and because of what I've had to learn how to cope with that way I've learned how to prepare for potential reactions to traumatic situations. And, and that was one, obviously I knew that I was going to face at some point. Um, and then it was really just kind of the process after that really got me. It was, you know, I was, I was coming off that shift and I remember calling ahead and just saying, uh, I'm not coming home right now. Um, this isn't, you know, at, at that point, it wasn't something I was in a place to hide from my children. It wasn't something I was in a place that I was prepared to just push it down and pretend it hadn't happened and get on with the day, you know, as a normal day and knew that I needed to kind of process what I was feeling and knew that I needed to let myself feel that and and didn't want to have to explain that to you know, my children didn't want to have to experience that with them or, or internalize it to protect them. Um, and I knew I needed to feel it. And I did, you know, I, I spent that day, I, I uh, parked myself on a couch for a while, and, and there were tears and there were moments of um, really not being able to separate it not being able to kind of pull myself out of it and and that was fine you know it's uh it, it's tough when you have to choose to live in those moments but there's a certain benefit to living in those moments as opposed to trying to avoid them and you know I kind of caught my breath and and was just really gentle with my day and and really didn't take on anything that required a lot of myself and I went later that day and I, I sat at the cemetery with my son for a bit um and just kind of you know really let myself feel it and and not in a not not in like a I wasn't moping in it. I wasn't, it, it wasn't something that was like, oh, you know, I need to drown myself in this. It was it it just brought it back and it it kind of made me relive those three days in the hospital of losing him and, you know, holding him for the time that we had and, and, and having to walk away from that and knowing that that was it, that that's all the time you're ever going to be granted. And so, yeah, the process in itself, you know, it, it unfolds and it unravels and you have moments of your life, whether, whether professional or not, that are going to take you back into that moment. And I think that, because of how much time I've spent learning to be comfortable with discomfort and, and learning to be okay with 
the extreme emotions and the extreme responses, it, it really enabled me to kind of live through that moment in a way that that felt productive and felt acceptable. And, you know, there was no judgment, there was no guilt, there was no, there was no need for me to beat myself up over it. Um, it wasn't a situation that I could have changed on the on the other end. And, and, you know, you you find acceptance in that. And when you really kind of find that acceptance, because you allow yourself to explore and be affected by it in a very vulnerable way you come out the other side of it knowing you really didn't get a say in it and all all you have a say in is the fact that you you get up and you keep going or you lay down and you you give into it and i just you know so for me it was just in the early days, I mean, thank God we had, you know, a, a, another kid around who required us to be there for his his caretaking. I mean, it's not as though he was of an age where we could have just left him to fend for himself. It was, there's still a mouth here that needs to be fed and who needs to be safe and who needs love and who needs our attention. And, and that was super important in the first days i'm sure i'm sure that that experience would have been different if there was an option to just (laughs) crawl into bed and and pull the cover over my head and and call it a day but you know it's uh it's tough it's tough to choose to go through the hardest moments and really immerse yourself in them and let yourself experience them but in anything that any trauma or extreme situation has ever taught me in life is until you actually allow yourself to go through that moment, you're always just running. You're always just trying to stay a step ahead of it until at some point it's going to bring you to your knees. And when it brings you to your knees, it's going to be when you weren't expecting it. And that's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to, it's a lot harder to make sense of chaos when you're drowning in it. And you know, it makes sense that it's going to suck. It makes sense that it's going to hurt. It makes sense that it's hard. And when you accept all those things, you take the power out of them being able to drown you. It was so profound listening to your perspective now. And, you know, obviously I'm, I'm heartbroken for you and your wife losing a child. But <clears throat> the, so many people are on the show, they discover their tools after that catastrophic failure, you know, after that that depth that they find themselves in and of course you were in a depth at first but the tools that you walked into the fire service with the tools that you had during the second pregnancy you know it's it's amazing hearing how you were able to take that step back and and when you talk about okay i need to process this now when i look at the fire service it's so easy to fill that void so you don't have to you know obviously the, the the more apparent ones are you know drugs and alcohol and gambling and infidelity certainly but overtime is another huge one working side gigs whatever and just keep going yeah so to have that in your toolbox to go this this happened like when you were talking i flashed back to one i wrote about in my book which is a a decapitation of a three-year-old we went on and you know horrendous scene absolutely fucking awful um and you know that is just one of a very short career, 14 years in my, in my uh, career. So that's half of what a lot of people do. 
Um, and if you don't stop, and I, I did process that and I did talk about it and I did write about it, you know, and I think that's why, you know, I was able to put it back where it's supposed to be in, in the memory, not the, you know, the, the frontal part of my brain. But, you know, we, all of us have these exposures and that's just at work, you know, on top of sleep deprivation, on top of organizational stress and, and then, you know, the, the relationship issues and all these other elements. Um, but it's so powerful to hear that the tools that you picked up through your, your hockey career and, you know, the, the highs and lows that you went through gave you the emotional maturity to identify what a lot of us don't find until we are in that very dark place. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's tough, right? Cause it's inevitably, it's usually the hardest things in life that teach us the most. And you know, it's, it's too bad that somebody hasn't been able to write a playbook that is, is kind of preventative in nature, right. From step one, where if, you know, we actually took the time to buy into it and, and just kind of prescriptively read those things, we couldn't avoid all these things, but it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's something that, like I said, when I got hired, they, you know, it's not like I could hide that I live with mental illness. You, you Google me, people know my diagnosis and, you know, that's not really like up there on, on the hiring powers, like to do list in terms of, uh, wanted skills for an employee. And, you know, it's, uh, it's tough because I knew that when I chose to share my journey, that I was putting myself at risk to, face that and to be in a position where it was going to be a negative for me. And so it's always been something that I've had to consciously, I've had to consciously kind of put it in a place where I could understand its value in my life. And, you know, yes, in the beginning, when I was first diagnosed and when I was very unable to function and day-to-day life was not tolerable, uh, very different situation. But since I've gotten to the place I've gotten to into recovery, um, even on my bad days, there's not a single day that I'm not better off for what I have learned and what I have gone through. And, you know, it, it only makes the great days that much better as well, because it, it's really that, that simplicity of stepping back and, and kind of taking a little bit of a scan on yourself and, and figuring out what's affecting you and how and where you're pouring your energy and, and how you're kind of distributing yourself and where you may or may not be able to prepare yourself for what may come, you know, and it's our whole lives. We're taught the benefits of physical health. We're taught the benefits of, you know, a healthy heart and a good diet and, and cardiovascular and, you know, the obvious big, um, physical kind of uh, issues and and very little time is ever spent teaching people about emotion and resilience and coping and the benefits of how many different resources are available, both professionally and not, to really give us the best toolkit to manage life. And it's, you're right, it's not just work. And I get it, you know, we see the extremes. You know, I, I, had it, I had it described to me once by a psychologist about how first responders really, you know, deal with the amount that we're exposed to. And they, they related it to, you know, driving a pickup truck. And every call is just another stone you're throwing in the back of the pickup truck. And, you know, maybe that one didn't feel big and maybe that one didn't feel heavy and maybe that one didn't feel overwhelming or it wasn't shocking. 
But eventually, when you throw as many stones in the back of a pickup truck as we pick up over our careers, um, that truck fills up pretty fast, and that's heavy. And you know, it's 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 really tough to uh, really undo that and understand it if you never deal with what you're putting in the back of that pickup truck. And most don't. And, you know, all of a sudden it's, you can't figure out what the trigger is. You can't figure out what sets you off. You can't even necessarily figure out what's bothering you and why you're feeling the way you're doing You are, it's just so overwhelming and heavy and unbearable that it then becomes, that panicked kind of self-preservation and that necessity for, you know, the panic that comes with fight or flight, right? And, And it's, you're drowning in it. And now all of a sudden we're expecting these people in these, you know, incredible daily situations to be able to manage that. And we've done nothing to teach them how to. And so it's, you know, it's, it's oddly been this warped blessing that, that I've been through what I've been through because it really forced me to recognize that time after time, you know, we're going to come across events in life where you can either choose to run as fast as you can, knowing you're never going to run fast enough, or you can sit there for a second and let it catch you and, and deal with what that feels like, which sucks. But, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're, you're carrying it with you. You're not carrying it on top of you. And it's this place where you can exist with it instead of feeling like you are just trying to keep it at bay. Yeah, well, it aligns with something I've talked about. Just I've worked for four different departments. It was four different hiring practices. And <clears throat> each time, apart from one, there was a polygraph, which I joke about, you know, smoke and mirrors, really ridiculous. And then there's a psych test. And so the way... I feel like mental health is approached to a firefighter candidate is let's make sure we get rid of the crazies. It's not about, hey, let's see if you have anything you're bringing into the job. Let's help you process some things. Let's build some of that post-traumatic growth. It's check these boxes. So if you end up being some mass shooter, they're like, well, we tested them. You know, I don't know what to tell you. You know, so I wish that we would take that same exact budget, you don't need a penny more, and put it into some counseling sessions at the front door, whether it's the orientation, whether it's the first probationary year, because first you're able to open the door on that conversation, and secondly, you're building a relationship with a counselor that then hopefully you can carry on through your career. Well, it's, uh, I want to say disturbing. Disturbing is really the only word I've ever uh, come up with with this is it's uh you know, we have these kind of backwards processes where we think we can eliminate people from doing jobs that people do. And it's just, it, it's absolutely asinine to me. Um, so there's a bunch of statistics, you know, to throw around here. You know, for some reason, first responders are way more comfortable dealing with the designate of post-traumatic stress injury, post-traumatic stress disorder, post-traumatic stress because somehow then it validates that it's not, you know, it's not an illness. It's not something that's wrong with us. It's something that happened. And somehow we feel it's more tolerable to say, yeah, I I have this condition because of something that happened at work. It is somehow still 
not somehow. It's not it's not a mystery to me because, you know, people still see mental illness the way they see mental illness. But it's a lot less, I'll say, acceptable to say, I live with depression, I live with anxiety, I live with a panic disorder. And it just so happens that I take that with me to work every day. And so things may or may not affect me the same way it affects the person next to me. Well, arguably, nothing affects us all the same, first off. Second off, when you statistically break down the studies that they've done to kind of really investigate, um, you know, what what's the actual percentage of true PTSD, PTSI versus individuals living with mental illness, and it's now come to light in their life. And there are far more true diagnoses of mental illness than there are diagnoses of PTSD. It's just because of the work we're doing, it's an easy label. But the treatment is very different. There's a very specific treatment for PTSD and PTSI. And it's very different than that of most of the mood disorder spectrum. So, you know, we get this, you know, this first layer automatically is, is difficult to navigate because people still aren't comfortable saying, I live with mental illness. You know, I, I'm not going to go into work and have this extreme situation happen and say, I, I have PTSD or PTSI. I'm going to go into work as somebody who lives with anxiety. And sure, I might have a traumatic event and I may also suffer from PTSI, but there's this underlying condition that I needed to learn how to manage a lot better than I am anyway. So uh, there's that complexity. And on top of that, it's exactly what you said. I remember I was at a uh, uh, PTSD summit. It's a program in Canada that the provincial government in Ontario uh, put, some, put some great thought and funding into to really start to understand how first responders and their mental health is a different battle. And it is because there are far more traumatic events and far more high stress events with exactly, as you said, whether it's sleep deprivation, organizational structure, just the very dissemination of the culture within first response. Um, there are differences. You can't treat somebody who is doing the job of a firefighter or a police officer or a medic with the same, the same checklist that you're going to treat, you know, somebody working at the grocery store or at a bank, or it's a very different exposure. Um, but it was that, you know, it was the summit that was created to really understand this and, and all of the powers to be and the chiefs and the, the higher ups and all of these organizations were sitting in this room having this discussion about, you know, mental health and, and the discussion was meant to be and was created to have exactly what you just said, that conversation around how do we better support these individuals? How do we provide resiliency training? How do we identify the resources to these individuals and make it part of their training, make it part of the expectation, make it part of the ongoing training, as opposed to a, if you're in crisis, this is available for you in your, your employee package. And instead, how do we incorporate that on a day-to-day -day basis so that it's a tool that they're utilizing, not just when they need it, but also so that they're ready and hopefully taking some of the the chaos out of needing it, taking some of the desperation out of when you do need it. And 
it was exactly as you just said. It was it was all of the higher up standing up saying to the people who were you know providing this information. Well, better yet, instead of having to support these people, how do we weed them out? How do we get rid of them? How do we make sure we don't hire those people? And you know, you're sitting there and you're listening to it, and it's it's shocking because statistically you cannot. Statistically, a quarter of the population is living with mental illness. And beyond that, the very characteristics that often live within those people who are working in a first response environment lend to people who may be susceptible to having some of these issues. And they're they're an asset. When processed, they're an asset in the job. Exactly. And so now, so what you're asking is to basically take the people out of these, these untouchable humans that you want doing this. And it's this, it's mind blowing. It's, it's disturbing because I, I will never, you know, until my last breath, I will preach the fact that it's not a negative. It's not to be human is not something we need to apologize for. It's not something that requires forgiveness. We are human. We are susceptible to emotion. That is part of the reason people in this line of work are so good in this line of work because they care for others. They have an inherent desire to support and help others. And what you're looking for is somebody who's void of emotion and void of empathy and void. Uh, how is that a good candidate? No, how is that? That's a broken person too. So, <laughs> yeah, but somehow that seems more desirable because they're less likely to break down, to cry, to feel, to show, you know, emotion that they perceive as weakness. And it's it's. It's infuriating, especially when you've spent as much time on the biology of it, the science of it, the emotion of it, the, the, uh, it, it just, it, it makes no sense. It's such a lack of, you know, foresight and it's, it's not okay. And it's got to change. It's got to change because until people recognize that in any culture of, of, any profession you're dealing with people period full stop you're dealing with people you're not dealing with with machines you're not dealing with sociopaths i I mean essentially that's 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 the job description you're looking for if you're looking for people who candidates who are void of emotion and void of empathy and void and i mean i can't help but think that those people aren't going to run to help somebody those people aren't going to be the people who are going to be your strongest candidates and that's not to say everybody with a skill set to be a first responder is going to be dealing with, you know, mental health issues. No, but even people who aren't dealing with mental health issues, even people who don't have mental illness, in these roles, you are being subjected to occurrences and traumas and events that require support. And that support just so happens to be something that. It, you know, it it aligns with talking about mental health. And I don't understand why that's still something we trip over. It, it's such a, a basic concept, support the whole person, 
support everything, support the fact that even on their worst day, they're showing up and they're going to work and they're putting other people's needs and, and traumas and the chaos that comes with that ahead of their own. And what are we doing to make sure that when they come back from that call, there's something to manage their own instead of just kind of voiding that and expecting them to push through that until, you know, until the day that it's, it's no longer the issue of the fire service. It's just this broken shell of a person at age 60 who doesn't know what to do next and has this pickup truck full of boulders and is just trying to keep going now. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree completely. And what's really been eye opening for me is how many people have come on the show who have childhood trauma and you know they were drawn to our professions for a reason for an altruistic yeah. reason but you know that's not processed so as you said in theory they're walking around with anxiety with depression whether they realize it or not i mean i i, I talk about this when i wrote the book it kind of opened a little trap door in my head about a house fire that almost killed me when i was four and I was like a bedwetter until very, very early teens. So when I look back at, you know, kind of through the child psychologist's eyes, I'm like, yeah, I guess I was a little bit fucked up. I was hyper anxious. Um, I had this, this fear of heights that came out of nowhere. I used to climb trees and then overnight. So there's all these elements and I didn't suffer from anything deeper into my career, but Jesus Christ, were there enough triggers? And so all the positive things growing up on a farm, the family unit, all those things were definitely the the counter to some of the trauma but if we are looking as you said and i talk about this all the time some freaking eunuch choir boy to be a firefighter then you are fooling yourself and and just like you were talking about we need a spectrum of personalities of emotional backgrounds because as i'm sure you've had i've had patients that no one else can get through to and i've been able to and persuade them to go to the hospital i've had patients where i've been the most compassionate kind and person on the scene and the person's a fucking asshole to me. And they end up talking to one of my douchebag friends who connects with them perfectly, you know? So we need those different um, backgrounds. But the one common denominator, like you said, we're all going to walk in the door with something. So to give us the same tools mentally as we do and emotionally as we do with the physical side, as you said, pulling ladders and, you know, pulling hose and throwing ladders and the PT it makes no sense to ignore the thing that's between our, our ears because that's the thing we're going to be using 99% of the time. A hundred percent. It's, it's, and it's a failure to do so. And I think that that's something that's always kind of eluded me when it comes to um, the conversations around this and, and really being able to kind of, you know, I got into firefighting at a place where I was already mature in my life and, and having a lot of life experience coming into this. So, you know, I, I didn't come into this profession as a, as a, a 20 year old who still had that kind of gung ho, you know, not necessarily having been exposed to life situations that allow you to empathize on a different level with individuals as they're going through loss or as they're going through some of the things that we come across at, at, at work. And it's, uh, it's just, it, it's really tough for me. It's really tough to sit back when you see those, th those kind of moments where you can tell somebody's affected. You could tell somebody is being um, drawn into a situation differently. And, you know, you want to check on them and you want to, you want to make sure everything's good. And you, you know, you, you send that message after and you're either hit with 
kind of the brush off or the, you know, they're grateful that you did. And I just don't understand why that's just not a given. I don't understand how it, at any point in life at this point, like, I mean, it's, it, this is, again, this is, this is beyond just a first response thing at this point. This isn't, everybody is going through too much right now. I mean, humanity wasn't, our norm is so beyond normal at this point. And this pandemic has shifted perspectives and changed the rules of everything we ever knew about life. I mean, there, there's just conversations and situations on a daily basis for every single person on this earth right now that are, you know, three years ago, you only saw in Hollywood, you only saw on, you know, Contagion or Outbreak or, you know, a movie that you watched and went, oh my gosh, that's so messed. Like, could you imagine? And all of a sudden now it's, you know, you, you're walking into a store and you realize you forgot your mask and it's, it's my word. Like I, I, and then it's that moment of three years ago, could you imagine thinking I needed to get a mask to go do my groceries? And, you know, there's just so much, there's so many innuendos that have kind of piled on top of everything. And whether it's in our profession or outside of our profession, um, there's just got to be this new realization that we need to take better care of each other. And, you know, our profession, it's been intense. It's been intense. You know, it's, it's intense to think every time you respond to a medical, what you're up against is all of a sudden a little bit, you know, it's got a few more question marks attached to it and it's got a little bit more unknown attached to it. And, whether we like it or not, as people, we like answers. <laughs> we don't like the unknown. We don't love, we don't embrace the what ifs. We, you know, and if you're somebody who lives with anxiety, you embrace it in a really unhealthy way. So it's, it's this realization that should be kind of putting this on display for the world where, you know, now more than ever, we need to check in on each other. And it's such a simple concept. It, it's such a simple practice to put in place. Um, but so many people are still scared to admit that it's needed and, and it just shocks me. It, it shocks me. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm seeing the ripple effect and of course it's not, you know, nothing is solely from one element, but you want to amplify what's already going on. Then you do what we've done for the last 18 months. Um, and you know, sadly, like this week, I've seen multiple police officer suicides, several firefighter suicides around the country. So, that's what scares me is I think just now we're starting to see the mental health ripple effect of this last year and a half. Yeah. And I think that that's unfortunately something that's going to get worse before it gets better. And I, I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to play the doomsday here. I'm not trying to foreshadow the worst case. And I'm, I'm certainly not. I, I wish I, I hope I'm wrong. I, I do. I hope I'm wrong. Um, but a lot of people knowing my story and knowing my kind of journey in life and everything I do outside of the department and, you know, with other departments, um, you know, I am somebody that people have taken the time to reach out to and, and express. And, you know, there's certainly a lot more people right now that are struggling and there's a lot more people who are, you know, second guessing their, their, their profession, second guessing where they're at in their life, second guessing what matters, second guessing, you know, really what's important to them now. And, it, you know, it's tough. I think you're going to see a lot of people 
a lot of people with those struggles, a lot of people who are kind of hiding those struggles behind less, uh, less than healthy means of, of distraction. Um, I think you're going to see some people walk away. I think you're going to see some people just really, you know, I, I, I'm not going to be surprised and, and to see some, some members who just, you know what, though, I think a lot of people might stick it out until we get to kind of closer to that finish line, because I think that that inherent desire to be there for your brothers and sisters in these professions, I think that's real. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if when we got closer to that finish line, they, they're ready to, to try something else. Cause it's, uh, a lot of people are, are, a lot of people are hurting right now. A lot of people are really struggling with this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, just one, one more little area then before we move on. Our men and women have been worked into the ground. You know, doctors, nurses, firefighters, cops, you know, and all the other professions attached to them. One thing that I did, despite that badge of honor that I saw a lot of people walk around with, which was that I never take sick days badge. Um, I always took those mental health days, you know, and it often wasn't the mental health. It was just to be with my family. It was just to connect. It was just to not be on shift for that one day and kind of reset and catch up on some sleep. So with you having that toolbox that you brought into the fire service with some of the breaks that, you know, I've even seen you take since we've been talking, what advice would you give to people listening as far as self-assessment and taking some time? Yeah. So it's, it's weird because it's been a a learning curve for me to really understand um, uh, how to navigate this. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's tough, right? Because for me, I've kind of got to be at the extreme. And that's not necessarily best practice, right? Like, it's not, it's not, don't wait till you're on your knees and crawling your way out of it before you recognize there's an issue. And especially when you can easily recognize that something's off and something's not right. And I remember when I first kind of started on, uh, I really struggled with the whole, you know, taking time. I remember the one time and non-mental health related, I had thrown my back out doing something. And, and at the same time, I wanted to believe that I could, you know, I, I can get through a shift. Like I, of course I can. And I, I called one of my senior guys and I'm like, look, like, I feel like I could get through this, but I, I, you know, there's a question mark somewhere in my head that's making me think it. And, you know, he, he stopped me dead and he said, if I needed you to carry me out today, could you get me out? And, you know, I thought about how my back was feeling and I thought about what it was that was really kind of creating the most acute pain. And I said, you know, I have no doubt with my personality and with who I am that I'd find a way to get you out, but am I going to be at my best doing it? No, like I'm not, I'm not right now. I'm not, it hurts quite a bit. And he said, then you shouldn't be here. And I said, okay, you know, that makes good sense. And I, I, I took that advice and, and so, you know, fast forward a little bit and I started thinking about where is the parameter for that with mental health, because it's, you know, it's, there's so much gray area. There's so many people who abuse that as well. There's so many people who, you know, hear that there's a, an opportunity to have time off. And that's, that's, you know, you, you unfortunately have people who abuse uh, privileges and, and that's uh, a whole other end of the spectrum but then you know for me I could push through almost anything 
So I had to kind of create that standard for myself of where do I sit on this? Like, you know, uh, I, I can be kind of anxious uh, on any given day and it really won't affect me and you'll never know it. It's just kind of that internalized feeling and I can push through that. Um, but I can also have days where, you know, my mental health is, is not where it needs to be to, to really be engaged. And so I started thinking about, you know, the calls we get at work and the situations we face at work. And I, you know, and as, as maybe extreme as this is, I thought to myself, you know, if I, if, if I called 911 because something happened to my child and the people that show up that, you know, one of the, the primary functions we serve as first responders is instilling safety we are instilling that sense of, of hope and help. And, you know, somebody who's in a crisis or in an emergency, you call 911, you know, when you finally see those lights, there's, there's relief, there's help, there's somebody there. It's not just on you. And so I kind of flipped it around on myself and thought, you know, if I'm walking through that door, can I make them feel safe right now? Can I, can I give them enough of myself that, I could manage this in a way that I'm making the situation better for them or am I making it worse? Am I now a burden in this situation because I can't, I can't offer the version of myself that needs to be a support and needs to be an effective firefighter. And, you know, so in turning it around and kind of really putting myself in a perspective where it was, you know, I, I kind of based so much of my life around that golden rule, which is, you know, I, I want others to give me what I give them. And, I've got to be able to give that part of myself. I've got to be able to focus. I've got to be able to pay attention. You can't miss the little innuendos or the details or the symptoms or the, you know, the potential dangers or there's no room for that. There's no room for being that distracted. And so I kind of gauge it by that. If I'm in a position where my mental health feels as though either a, I'm not giving somebody that sense of security by by being present and, and with the skills that I have and B, if there's a, a potential that my distracted mind is not going to be able to focus in that moment and might put me or somebody else at risk, then again, there's no benefit to me being at work. There's no, uh, that's a failure on my behalf to misrepresent myself in a way to say, I'm at my best right now and I'm good, you know, and, and I get it. I'm not always going to be at my best, but I'm at work. None of us are, you know, we're not, we're human, <laughs> you know, we're not always going to be having our a day, but we know what's expected of us. And if emotionally we're not able to manage that and if physically we're not able to manage that, I think that there's a requirement to acknowledge that because I think when we don't acknowledge that people get hurt and you know, it's ultimately, it's why we have sick days. It's why we have the ability to say, I, I'm not capable of performing what you need to be able to perform today. And I'm acknowledging that. And, and that has to be okay. Yeah. I mean, it should be for, for ourselves as well, but I think we struggle with that being servants. So that's a good way of framing it, you know, and it's something I talk about even with the fitness side too, you know, with the, that same accountability. But yeah, I mean, you know, am I able to, am I, am I going to be that, that one wreck where I plow into a bunch of, you know, kids in a minivan because, you know, I was sleep deprived and I can't even see straight. So I like the way you frame that. 
So I just want to say thank you. We've been chatting for well over two hours now. I want to just um, make sure that people know how they can find you if they want to reach out, any any kind of you know literature or videos or anything that would help other other interviews. So where are the best places to find you and learn more about you online? Yeah, so I mean, I have a website. It's ironic you're catching me at an interesting time in my life. So I just signed on with a literary agent today. So there'll be a book soon. Thank Brilliant. you. Thank you. Um, so that's in the process, but, uh, in addition to that, obviously there's a little overhaul happening of my platform to support that. So you can catch me at kendrafisher.com. Um, and I'm on Instagram, uh, at kfisher30. And you could probably find any link off my Instagram to all my other social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, you name it. It's uh, it's all out there. And I think they're all slight variations of whatever username I could snag that was closest to my real name. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm kind of kind of all over the place. Well, Kendra, I want to say thank you. I mean, I say this to everyone that kind of really goes to a place that they're trying to heal from to tell their story because I know the ripple effect. I hear the messages. I know how many people it touches, but I also understand the cost. Every time someone goes there and visits, there's, there's a cost to that individual as well. So I just want to say thank you so much for being so courageous in your storytelling and so generous with your time today. No, absolutely my pleasure. It's been a, it's been an awesome conversation. 